Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, and joined by Sean Dagenhart. Hey there. And John Redling Schaefer. Howdy, howdy. I wish you could see John dancing like I can. Uh, we are. <laughs> That's only in your dreams, John. That's only in your dreams. <laughs> we are enjoying our week. We hope you're enjoying yours. Before we start the show, I want to remind you, you can contact us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion, or drop us a line at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Let's start things off with our Disney views and throw it over to John. Thank you, John. And actually, I'm going to lift a statement from Josh Tomorrow, the chairman of Disney Parks and Experiences and Products that came out recently. On a prior episode, we talked about the four keys that cast members, the longstanding tradition of what they need to know uh, about safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. Uh, Josh Tomorrow said those have guided our approach to guest service for more than 65 years. Those are the first things that the cast members learn about. But you'll also remember on that same episode, we talked about the fifth key that was being introduced, the key of inclusion. And so um, Josh DeMauro really kind of expanded on what that was going to mean. We had some ideas, we had some speculation, but this statement that he issued really hits um, to inform all of us what this fifth key is going to mean. Um, so like the four keys before them, the five keys with inclusion at the heart will continue to guide us as we interact with guests, collaborate together, create the next generation of Disney products and experiences, and make critical decisions about the future of our business. Inclusion is essential to our culture and leads us forward as we continue to realize our rich legacy of engaging storytelling, exceptional service, and Disney magic. We're bringing the spirit of the inclusion key to life across our business. We're reimagining our attractions to be more inclusive, like upcoming enhancements to Jungle Cruise and new adventures with Princess Tiana. We're celebrating the diverse and inspiring stories of our cast and fans with creator collaborations and exciting experiences, like the Soul of Jazz exhibit at Walt Disney World. You remember that was recently at uh, the American Adventure in Epcot. We're also looking at ways we can support and uplift our communities through programs like our Disney Dreamers Academy and including more diverse companies in our supply chain. Our goal is also to have more representation and accountability across our organization, starting with uh, DeMarle goes into his own leadership team and goals there. We're looking at other traditions too, including the policies that guide how our cast members show up for work. Our new approach provides greater flexibility with respect to forms of personal expression surrounding gender-inclusive hairstyles, jewelry, nail styles, and costume choices, and allowing appropriate visible tattoos. We're updating them to not only remain relevant in today's workplace, but also enable our cast members to better express their cultures and individuality at work. Moving forward, we believe our cast, who are at the center of the magic that lives in all of our experiences, can provide the best of Disney's legendary guest service when they have more options for personal expression creating richer, more personal, and more engaging experiences with our guests. So, John, first off, thank you for, for reading that statement. Uh, the way I look at it is this. The cast member that I'm working with, that I'm talking to, um, 
I care more about how that person is treating me and my family and uh, how they're doing their job around me than I do if they have longer hair or a tattoo. Uh, the, the cast member is the person that I'm working with. And, and that's my take on it. Well, and that's just it. I mean, the whole concept of the uh, pride in your culture, I mean, my girls are a little older now, but we still watched Moana. I mean, you, you, you can imagine Maui? You know, well, he, Maui can't work at our theme park because he has tattoos. I mean, the logic's just not there, right? So I, I'm absolutely with you 100%, John. And there is a size uh, for the tattoo, for the visible tattoo, right? It, it has to be uh, the size of a closed fist or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there obviously will be some guidelines, and certainly um, I'm sure with certain positions within the cast member universe, the, the, some restrictions have to remain for obvious reasons. But uh, it, it's still... I think you're seeing a Josh DeMauro generation closer in age to ours starting to take hold in the company. I think it's refreshing. I agree with you about, you know, just cast member interaction and how you're treated, I think is, you know, most important. Coming out of Walt's age when there were so many more restrictions, I mean, you know, through the years, those have always been laxed just a little bit. And I think people's, maybe if they're opposed to it, their initial gut reaction is like we talked, you know, before we started recording about Cinderella with a big biker tattoo, you know, down her arm. I don't think that's what we're going to see. You know, it'll be subtle nods and, you know, just ways for people to express their individuality and create more opportunity for conversation and things like that. Perfectly said, Sean. Well, we're excited for our guest this week. He's the producer of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. That includes the Disney Dish with Jim Hill and Lantesta. Fine-tuning with Jim Hill, Andrew Taylor, and along with Jim, he is the co-host of Marvel Us Disney. Aaron Adams joins us. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much. Thank you for not calling me a Marvel expert because I'd be like, here's your fork. Let's start eating some words. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're a fan and you're a co-host and that's what's wonderful. I I love the show. You and Jim, who is a Disney historian, do a great job. Why don't you tell us about the show, Marvelous Disney? Well, it's all of the depth of history that Jim Hill can bring to a show, which is great. And then there's the uh, broken audio mind of me that likes to throw in little sound effects and and think about things in a weird fashion uh, a little bit differently. And, And you mash the peanut butter and the insane jelly together. And boy, what a peanut butter and jelly sandwich do we have there. So, uh, he's, he's the, uh, the one that finds all the history, sniffs out all the clues, knows all the names. I just sit back and enjoy myself. (laughs) (laughs) Now you, you produce several of his shows. So how did this one come about? Oh, well, this is the easiest answer. I started, I don't know, five or six years ago working with Len and Jim on Disney Dish. They just wanted a better sound. Uh, a, a lot of podcasts just don't have a lot of clean audio. And since I have a radio background, that was where I came in. And we had worked together for a year or two by that point. And then Jim came to Indianapolis for the Disney meet. And it was... Uh, the year that Marvelous Disney started, we had sat down for a dinner after the the meet, and he was like, "I wanna, I wanna branch out. I wanna do new things." And I said, "Well, you know, if we use Disney Dish as the the hub of the wheel, 
and then we spoke off. What else does Disney do? Well, there's Marvel, obviously, and you've got things like Lucasfilm, you've got things like animation, and, you know, I mean, over five minutes we had Marvelous Disney fine-tuning looking at Lucasfilm all lined up, ready to go, and uh, since we were brainstorming, it was easy to plan things together uh, off the cuff because you're not committed to anything at that point. You're just saying words. And then the next thing you know, Jim's like, well, how would you like to host Marvelous Disney? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Anyway, like we could do this and we could do that. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, I'm hosting a podcast going, wait a minute, this was not in the cards. I was just producing the stuff. So uh, it turned into a good time and, and you can't say no to a good time like that. So here we are. How long have you been a Marvel fan? It's how I learned how to read. My first word was thwip. <laughs> yeah. That's Spidey's... Uh, my uh, uncle. Yeah. Yeah, Sp- Spidey, whenever he flips out a web, that was my thing. My uh, uncle was only about five or six years older than I was, but he was the closest thing I had to a brother, and we went to the same school together. So, I mean, we were a, a close, small community family like that, and he was the... Marvel comic collector. He told me what mint condition was. He always had these comics that were mint. And for the longest time, I thought if I could just get them out of that plastic and put them in my mouth, they would taste of mint. <laughs> and no, uh, I was I was wrong. I was wrong about that. But yeah, I, I learned all through uh, the Avengers, the X-Men, and Spidey was my number one hero out of all of it. And I mean, really, when you're uh, raising a parent, I should hope you should be thrilled when your three or four year old comes to you with the problem of how do you say adamantium? <gasps> yes. <laughs> you won. You won parenting at that point. Exactly. Yeah. That's the kind of problem you want from your three or four year old is trying to figure out how to properly say adamantium. Good kid. Good kid. <laughs> Aaron, please understand um, you are sitting on a computer with two other marvel fans and then this guy the one pointing to himself that you know i occasionally saw it on tv i didn't have comic books as a kid you know what can you tell i'll say it a 42 year old that would really get him interested um we're seeing marvel universes you know developing all over the disney worlds including disneyland the most recent announcement what can I do to immerse myself, other than listening uh, to a wonderful podcast per se, uh, to really get into you know thwip and these other words that you're throwing around? And I'm smiling, you know, out of courtesy, but don't quite understand. Find what you love. Isn't that the the case with anything? And comics are wide and diverse enough nowadays where if you've got the smallest niche that you want to scratch, you can find that, and you can get that itch satisfaction from the right comic and and it's just a matter of you know getting to know you as a human a little bit better what drives you what motivates you and and uh, i bet i could in the course of you know 10 minutes or so point you to a comic book that you could latch on to and for any listener out there who may not be knee deep, knee deep in marvel history uh, i gotta tell you sandman coming to netflix later on this year is my number one thing not marvel related at all but it's neil gaiman and I read Neil Gaiman's Sandman while I was in college in broadcasting school. And it was one of those things, you know, when you go from like a kid to, oh, I'm an adult now. This is what the adults read. And it was still a comic book. It was just very mature adult subject matter where you had to think about what was going on. There was, you know, Greek mythology in this stuff. And uh, you had to know your history classes to appreciate some of the nuance there. So if it's just a matter of, 
Can I get into comic books? Absolutely. Anybody can. It's just a matter of, what do you love? Let's get to know you, and then let's start thinking about the, the characters that may personally connect to you on some level, and we'll find something that'll hook you and keep you hooked. And it doesn't have to be Spider-Man, but you can also wave your geek flag about anything this day and age and be proud of it. So let's find it, man. For me, growing up, I was a DC guy, you know, watching the Super Friends on Saturday mornings, that kind of thing. And my exposure to Marvel was the occasional Spider-Man cartoon and, you know, the Incredible Hulk series. So my main Marvel, I don't know what you want to call it, my main Marvel influence has been the MCU. So coming in with Iron Man, I recognize all of the nods that are given and I read up on it and, you know, so I am immersed in the MCU. But for you growing up with the Marvel comics, what was your impression when the MCU started? Were you nervous? Oh, yeah. Oh, nervous. Oh. Well, before I think uh, Iron Man was coming along in Marvel or I'm sorry, and then uh, Disney was not yet quite involved at that moment. And boy, I was throwing my fists in the air like I was an invisible boxer. Come on, Disney, you don't mess up my shows, man, because they won't be able to say swear words and there won't be blood allowed on the screen. It's going to be all just, ugh. And man, Disney's just been smoking it. It's been hot. It's been lit. It's been exciting. And it doesn't need to have all the swear words. Although when we're watching uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, my wife is like, it's so weird to hear them use a profanity. I clutch the pearls. Oh, my God. Um, but we get excited when we get back into adult land because it's not always for kids. And that's one of the things like I'm looking forward to Sandman was that exact reason. It's not just for kids. It's a very adult ride that I want to take there. And so when we get six hours of things like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, we get to tell a deeper story. And part of that story right now that Marvel is telling is racism that still exists in this country, and they're going to address it head on. And they've got a, a few extra minutes in these six hours of entertainment that they're going to give us to say, uh, you know, the 616 universe, it, this is our difference between DC and Marvel is 616 is outside my window. If I were in New York and I look outside, theoretically, Spidey should be able to swing by no problem. Can't do that with Batman. That's uh, Metropolis and, and Gotham. You know, that's a fictional world. That's not here. And so I think that's one of those differences is uh, when we look at just the the setting of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, You, if you live in New York, you can go outside and touch most of those buildings. If you're in D.C., you are locked in the imagination of a desaturated color world of Zack Snyder. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> but it's cool. It's style. And and uh, boy, if Batman isn't all about style, always has been, right? Dark and moody and all that. So, I mean, it fits. I'm not going to complain about that. So, you know, you, you talk about the real world with Marvel, and I've been in Queens, and you could see it. I mean, it it pops right off the page. It feels like, like you said, Spider-Man's going to fly right through. As a kid, right. I think just like John and Sean, I was first attracted to the, to the comics, to the stories through media, through visual media. You know, I watched mm -hmm. uh, the 50 Superman uh, on reruns, and I watched Batman yep. from the 60s and Wonder Woman in the 70s. Uh, but when I first started reading Marvel, a couple things stood out to me. A, they were just funnier. You know, I mean, Spider-Man was a wise guy. I'm like, I know this guy. Right. I go to school with this guy, you know, uh, there, but their, their problems were more relatable. That's what drew me eventually to Marvel. And then as the, uh, movies got better, 
I wanted to learn more about the source material. What drew you, pun intended, by the way, what drew you to Marvel Comics? Besides your, your family relationship, what, what, you know, what kind of latched you on and, and kept you there? Um, you know, honestly, at that superficial age, sometimes it was an artist and that was it. I saw a cover that wowed me and I said, ooh, whatever that is, I got to have that. Um, I still have, to this day, uh, Batman Arkham Asylum, which wasn't a hardcover, but it was like a little trade paperback. But it had one of the most terrifying images of the Joker I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I, I looked at the price tag, and it was like 12 bucks or whatever, and I'm like, just empty my wallet here at the age of however old I was and take it all. I need this picture. And so, yeah, a lot of times it was just an image that, that jumped out and... Out of the the three guys here, how many had a local comic book store? I did. Did did the rest? You did? Okay. All right. So that was one of the things where you'd walk in and there's 100 options, and I've only got enough cash in my wallet for two. So you spend a good hour browsing, finding the one that you're going to take home with you. It was kind of like choosing a bride at a young age. You got to spend some time looking for the quality material. Uh, <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. Um, but no, I mean, you, you spent time looking at what you were going to buy uh, before you bought it. So um, I did, you know, they did multi-issue arcs. So I, I really didn't care about the story. It was, it was uh, the look of the thing. And all of a sudden I discovered that I liked a certain artist and I started to follow an artist. And then I started to grow up a little bit and I started to appreciate the story. And then I learned about the writers of the things and I started to follow certain writers after certain arcs. And then, oh, and Venom popped up in the 90s. Well, then anything with Venom you had to get and then Carnage showed up and anything with Carnage you had to get for a long time. It was just, you know, follow the trail of your favorite bits and pieces. You guys talk a lot about, uh, you know, the, just the, the the background with with where the source material comes from, you and Jim do. Mm. Um, and I love the conversations. Are there any times where you guys feel like, um, you know, how, how does the show get kind of put together? Do you just walk into it not knowing right. what he's going to talk about? And, and I mean, you, you're very passionate. You want to know how it gets from farm to table? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The the farm part starts off with uh, Jim with a little hoe out in a field, and he's digging up dirt. And he finds the dirt, and he puts it in a bucket, and he comes with a a 10-gallon bucket for a 5-gallon show, right? And uh, and seriously, if if we wanted to do an hour-long Marvelous Disney where I just vacate for the entire hour, Jim could just sit there and and read prepared material for an hour. Um, So... Really, he, he comes with the story and I come with the opinion, you know, and I mean, there are times where he'll go, oh, someone at Disney told me this and I'll say, well, they're full of it. They're either feeding you a line to save corporate face or they're just not in the loop or Disney's broken for thinking that way. I don't know what it is. And then we ha- have to suss out what's what. Does this make sense as a business model for Disney to do this or is this person just not as informed without trying to give away any names or anything like that? You know, what department are they in? Because I don't think that department should know that information uh, or, or what have you. So, yeah, Jim does a lot of research. We do have a news portion, but it's it's so much more, you know, it's more than news. He, he does the research on his feature segment, which is, a you know, a lot of history and a lot of research and a lot of forethought. And uh, I think that's the part where you don't have to be as 
oh, this news broke an hour ago. Look at us, guys. We're waving the fresh news flag. It's like anybody can do that. Anybody can look up a headline and see what the rest of the idiots were talking about that is just not true. You know, Andrew Garfield costume and his stunt double, and it's like, I don't care. I just don't care. Until Marvel actually says it, it's a rumor. You know, I mean, it's a good rumor. It's a juicy rumor, and I can see why everybody in the world is going to run with it. And I can understand the possibility of, you know, the multiverse was huge in the animated thing. But do I really think that Marvel wants to repeat the thing that they've already, that Sony has already just done in a live action form? And I'm like, eh, not really. I mean, I get why they would. So there is that little part of me that believes this much. It could happen. But the rest of me goes, no, no, no. That's just. The internet talking nonsense because they got nothing else to talk about official. Yeah, well, they've pulled a lot of swerves on us. You know, the Evan Peters thing. They have. You make a lot of predictions, though, and and I love the predictions. They're not predictions. They are just wild stabs in the dark. At, at, you, it, you try and think you know a business, right? And you go, well, this just doesn't make sense for them to do a certain thing. I mean, my prediction, and most recently when we were talking about Black Widow, whether it gets moved or not, when you make nine different predictions in nine different directions yeah eventually you're gonna you know i bet on black i bet on red and i bet on green now spin that wheel and let's see if i broke even or not and and (laughs) as far as the stories go i've always felt not always but uh up until you know this past year i feel like if there's one thing you can predict about marvel and with kevin feige is he's unpredictable and you don't know what direction you're going in until you get there and that's what i love about marvel Uh, About the MCU in particular. Yeah, no, definitely. I thought uh, I knew a lot more about what WandaVision was going to be than what it actually was, even though it left me disappointed for a complete two episodes. Um, And I was so happy when I went to go see, you know, in the time of COVID, we don't get to see our friends that much. So I did finally get to go visit with some friends and and we were all masked up and they were like, oh, we haven't had a chance to geek out in a couple of months with, you know, official nerd talk. And then they get into Wanda and they're like, we didn't like it. We only got into two episodes and it made no sense. And I'm like, right? There is no point for the first two episodes except for the structure of, hey, we're going to tell it in this black and white thing. But nothing happens that affects any of the world. Nothing. And I said, if you, I promise if you go episode three to the end of it, something is worth, you know, something worth watching does in fact happen that tells a story. And then when Falcon and Winter Soldier hit, boom, ground running or air flying, I should say, because it, it starts off with wings. And, uh, well, I, I had mentioned in, in Marvelous Disney, I thought it looked phenomenal that the stunts were just off the chain or the the effects work. And then it turned out that they actually had guys in wingsuits diving within feet of moving helicopter blades to actually dive into a flying helicopter with a wingsuit. And I'm like, they're all crazy, but kudos to them for, you know, doing it. Yeah, that's amazing. So... Yeah, I'm very, very excited with what we've got. Loki coming up it just looks incredibly spindingly fun with the mischief and the chaos and the time travel. Owen Wilson. Wow. <laughs> um, that was good. <laughs> I caught that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 there's just so much to love right now. And, and uh, I know people are looking forward to X-Men and Fantastic Four, but we just keep getting so much cool stuff along the way. It's like... Uh, it's like a never-ending smorgasbord. You know that there's a great dessert coming. It's just like, yeah, but I can't stop eating this steak right here. It's so good and juicy and everything I ever wanted from a steak. And okay, I'll have some pudding. And you just, I feel like a glutton, like I should be the little purple girl rolled out of uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I'm just <laughs> overinflated with Marvel goodness that they've been giving us. I love uh, 
the Disney Plus subscription finally after a, a, a year of, well, Mandalorian was good. What do we do for the next, you know? You're uh, talking to three Disney nerds, though. We watch it all. We love all the documentaries, you know? I mean, uh, I think they've done a great job with that type of stuff, so. They have. No, there's there's a lot of great stuff there. But when I but when I got it, I, it's just like, yeah, but I've already seen all, all of the Marvel movies. I own them all. I know that you've got them curated for me, and that's awfully nice, but I want the new stuff, guys. Give me the shiny. And uh, so now that it's here, yeah, yeah. And and being both a Marvels and Star Wars fan, my life-size R2 dome there, and I'm just working on, by the way. He's all aluminum, heavy as dirt. Uh, no, I've been a member of the R2 Builders Club for uh, over a decade, and so there's different builders that build different parts, and they're all club-specced to, you know, be down to the nanometer and fit and form, and so you can decide on if you want a... a an R2 from A New Hope or the one from Empire Strikes Back because there's very subtle details between the two. Like every time a movie comes out, they're like, damn it, we got to build a new part because they put a new thing in his shoulder, you know, or whatever it is. And the R2 Builders Club for many years is is now building droids that are used in like Rogue One. Uh, Disney doesn't want to have to build them. They just go, hey, uh, droid club builders, you want to put your droids in actual Star Wars movies? And what's better than a screen-owned prop, right? But you built that one, and you controlled it on the set and all that. So, uh, no, I've, I've been a fan of Star Wars just as long as I have of Marvel. I remember the Star Destroyer flying over my head at the tender age of like three and a half and whatnot. And I've always, always, always wanted to be able to kick R2 in frustration. <laughs> so I, I decided I'll build one and I'll be able to finally kick him. So fine, go that way. It's much too rocky. I'll be over here. So if, if we want to subscribe to all the shows, is it just all under one feed now? There is a, I, I do believe that you can subscribe to just Jim Hill Media and get everything that is under the sun. Um, and he does a lot of, I, I mean, if you're a Disney fan, it's, it's a one good feed because it's all there. If, if you like the, the park news, um, the thing, I don't know if you guys had a chance to hear, but we got to work on something that was so cool for me anyway, was, um, on the Disney dish, they were doing an exclusive show and it was about these notes from, uh, Alamankowitz, and we ended up producing what was the second draft of uh, The American Adventure. Yes, from like and 1978, guys. You got to hear this. It's yeah, very well yes. produced. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you. That was just really cool to see like the original concept of a thing where you know it's not working. This ain't working, guys. We need another four or five drafts before we get it in the right shape. You know, so you're handed something broke and they go, obviously this didn't work. Uh, but can you make it as if they did do it for real? And, you know, the ideas where Len would come and, and we've got the professional voice actors, all of which I've worked with for many, many years. And they're all wonderful, kind talent to work with at soundworksvoices.com. And... We, we get all the work parts together, we put it all together, but it was just the output of like, I don't know of too many shows, podcasts, and, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way at all. It's just that Len has the, the, the resources and the passion to go to a college archive and dig up material and find these things and then go pay a bunch of voice talent, you know, to go voice this thing and then to put it together and see what it would have really sounded like had Disney run with the ball on that. 
Yeah, so I mean, he's he's just brilliant. He understands numbers. It's like he caresses and loves on a number, like you know, the the traditional Frenchman is like, ah, oh, we are going to make such beautiful music together, and uh, he he manipulates the numbers to create an app that helps the world. Whether it's you stand in a shorter line at Disney World, he's I a mean, rocket that's scientist. Awesome. Like he's literally a rocket yeah. scientist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, they're the relationship that I have with both Len and Jim is one of the most cherished I have because my normal business, I, I write really crazy commercials for radio. You know, I mean, if you are driving down the road and you hear uh, crazy accents and weird music and wild sound effects in a commercial, chances are I produced it and wrote it. And uh, right now, radio's kind of in a funk where they've, they've fired a lot of their help be, to keep costs low because they're just going through a real hard time right now financially. So my job, I've always been a commercial creative services director as part of my professional role, and now I've been self-employed for the last decade. And uh, I, I realized that when you're when you're doing it as a forty-hour-a-week job, and you've got two hundred commercials, you only get like you know half an hour to write and produce and move on to your next thing. Whereas I can take a day or two and do it right. And so I just guarantee if, if you if you work with me, you're going to get results because your radio station's audio is wallpaper, and I hang up a Mona Lisa on the wallpaper. And when you go to the Louvre, nobody ever talks about the wallpaper, do they? I'm sure it's very, very nice, but nobody ever talks about the wallpaper at the Louvre. They only talk about the Mona Lisa. And so, uh, you know, a bulk of my my work is in radio still, but after... 20 plus, you know, I don't even want to say close to 30 years of, of radio, but almost 30 years of radio. Uh, my relationship with Jim and Len is like that little crown jewel on top of it all because I'm doing interesting work with the thing like the American Adventure that I never got to do before. Um, and like I say, with with their podcasts in general, um it's like a, a diamond in the rough. You find it and you go, oh, there's so much interesting things. And you just spend a little time knocking the dirt away and polishing it up. And it's like, look at how this thing shines and gleams. It's a beautiful thing. So um, I was never really a Disney fan ever until I started working with Jim and Len. And I discovered the diversity that Disney has to offer with entertainment. And then lo and behold, I ended up with Marvelous Disney. And that was just an extra, you know, joyous thing that I get to do every week or two with with Jim. Uh, so it only gets better and better and better. Just want to thank you so much for joining us. We are, uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of, of all the stuff that you guys do, and uh, we hope to have you back on at some point. It's been my pleasure, and anytime you want, I got nothing but time. We're all locked in until the shot clicks in. <laughs> a huge thank you to Aaron Adams for joining us. Before we go, we heard from a listener who recently visited Walt Disney World, and has this trip report. My name is Josh Simon. Um, I moved to South Florida about eight years ago after living in Colorado and Illinois. And pretty much after I found a place to live in South Florida, the next uh, stop was to get a uh, Florida resident annual pass. I've had that since I've been here. Hadn't been in the park since late January, early February last year. and got vaccinated and I'm a month past my second shot and decided it was time to pack a suitcase for the first time and drive more than 20 minutes from my house and um, didn't have anybody to go with and decided I'd take a solo trip for a couple of days and go to my happy place and um, 
get a couple days of rest and relaxation in the Disney park. Obviously, with everything I've seen and, and people up there and having not been in real large groups in, in 14 months, it was a little bit, there was a little bit of hesitancy, I'll be honest. I actually booked two separate reservations at my hotel, one for Sunday night and one for Monday, which allowed me to decide Sunday if I had come up and went to Epcot and just didn't like having a mask on and felt like it was not okay. I could cancel my Monday night and just come home on Monday. And that was not what happened. I got up there and the one thing I did was I went to a disposable mask about halfway through the day and that made a huge difference. Um, I found that to be much more comfortable wearing around the park. Getting back into the park uh, was amazing. One of the nice things about a solo trip is that you just kind of go with what you're doing and there's not a whole lot of pressure for what you do. But my my main goal on this trip uh, was to get on Rise of the Resistance and to ride the new uh, Mickey and Minnie ride in Hollywood Studios, which opened, I think, literally right before the, the pandemic. So I went to Hollywood Studios on Monday and started with the, the Mickey and Minnie ride and thought, wow, that's a great ride. It's amazing. It's fantastic. And then later in the day, Road Rise of the Resistance and the Mickey and Minnie ride is nothing compared to Rise of the Resistance, which is, I'm not even a Star Wars fan, and it's the best, best thing I've ever been on. Not just a ride, it's an experience, is what I told people. So, like, the trip was a success at that point. I posted um, in a Facebook group saying that, my, you know, people might not agree, but a lot of people seem to agree that the lack of fast pass and not having fast pass, that there are definitely advantages. Um, the lines are very, very long with the physical distancing. Um, I got ready to ride the frozen ride, and to do that, you get in line in China and go through the China Pavilion kind of almost backstage and then back around before you even get into Norway and into the... Um, normal queue there, but they move fast. The people that make the, the queues and the lines, and especially with the distancing, it's amazing how they do it because you're zigging and you're zagging, and it's a science to figure out how those those queues work. So we were talking with a cast member at Mickey and Minnie's Railway, and the line is all the way out where the um, hat used to be. Like it comes all the way out there. And then at one point, you think you're going inside, and then it adds you back outside. Um, and we were talking with the cast member, the people in line with me, and the cast member said that it's been changing almost dated, like weekly. He said a couple of weeks ago, some high-up people from Disney were there with tape measures one day, measuring out space. And a half hour later, there was a crew there putting down new stickers for the moving the queue in the way that it went. So they're adapting, maybe even on a day-to-day basis. Our thanks to Josh for that report. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us at Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Or send us an email or a voice-recorded message at podcast at the Hyperion Hub. We also accept carrier pigeons. (laughs) Have a great week, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at 
podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Thank you.